It's hard to believe, isn't it, that uh, it's already the end of February. February 28th is tomorrow, the last day of the month. Seems like it goes by so fast. The older you get, faster time goes, doesn't it? Seems that way. Seems that way. February is a kind of crazy month for us at, at my house. We've got two birthdays. It's a short month and everything like that. And then, you know, something special happens in the middle of the month. Does anybody know what that is? Super Bowl. <laughs> well, I guess that is kind of special in, in our country. But ladies, you know what it is. Men, you better know what it is. Valentine's Day, right in the middle on the 14th. Yeah, Valentine's Day. So I was preparing this message today, or this week. I was talking to a brother in Christ of mine, and he was telling me about some roses that he bought his mother. <clears throat> he was telling me about how pretty they were. Different colors, red, uh, white, yellow, pink, all these beautiful colors. But he said, you know what, brother? He said, when you get up close to them, they don't have no fragrance, no smell anymore. And roses... I don't know about if, if you know this, but roses, I hope you know this, roses are supposed to be known by their smell, not just how good they look. And so, personally, I'm a tulip man myself. Some of you may get that. That's a theological joke there. But I'm a tulip man. But uh, yeah, roses, much like this fig tree in the temple in this in this uh, story we're going to read today, they professed, but they didn't produce. Those roses, they looked good on the outside. They put on a show of looking good. But on the inside, they had nothing to show. You get up close, no smell. So hopefully you made it to your Bible passage today, Mark chapter 11, 12 through 21, on page 899 of the Pew Bible. Let's all stand for the reading of the Word of God. Mark 11, verse 12. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went, out, went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. That's a key thing there. He said to him, may no one ever eat from, fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. I wonder why they did that. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, we come to you today and we open your word. Help me to be faithful in proclamation. Help us all to be faithful in hearing. Open our ears. Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds to understand your scripture today and to apply it to our lives. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So first, when we look at this passage, we see another sandwich teaching, another sandwich story by Mark, or a story inside of a story. And we need to understand some context to it. First, we need to understand some context as it relates to the temple. God used to have a physical temple located in Jerusalem. We see it here in this story. 
Herod the Great had started building it around 20 years before Jesus was born. And it was completed in 64 A.D. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. 80 years to build. Six years later, destroyed by the Romans in an act of judgment by God. But that's not the only temple, is it? The real temple, the perfect temple, is located in heaven. That temple is Jesus himself. He said so in John 2, 18-22. God once had a physical temple, now he has a spiritual temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us, and you don't have to turn to these passages. We put them up on the screen so you can jot them down on your notes. Look them up later. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us that the body of Christ, you and me are the temple of God. That temple is made up of people from all tribes, all nations, all tongues across this globe. It's made up of everyone who knows that they belong body and soul to the Lord and that they've been bought with the blood of Christ on the cross. Now last week we learned that Jesus had entered Jerusalem triumphantly and he essentially proclaimed himself the Messiah, without actually saying it, as Jason demonstrated last week, tell me you're the Messiah without telling me you're the Messiah. He, always, he might as well have just said it. He was the Savior of Israel, but not just Israel, is he? He's the Savior of the whole world. And that's a message the Jews had forgotten and abandoned. Now I want you to think about this for a second, church. If God will judge the nation of Israel... God will judge the nation of Israel, who he specifically called out and made a covenant with to be a light to the nations, to be his people and him to be their God. How will he respond to churches today? How will he respond to churches today who also ignore or abandon their covenant obligation to proclaim salvation to people everywhere? How will he respond, church, to us, Leonardtown Baptist Church, to the Southern Baptist Convention, to churches around the world, if we forget that our Lord is the Savior for all peoples. Just like those roses, God will judge those who profess but don't produce. 12 through 14. Let's put ourselves into the story here. Jesus had entered Jerusalem a day before and entered the temple, and he looked around. You know, you remember last week again, Jason said he entered the temple, and he's looking around. He's looking at the people, the money changers, tables, all this bizarre going on. And it was bizarre to see that in the temple of God. But he sees this in the court of the Gentiles of the temple. Then he just leaves. And he goes out to Bethany with his disciples. And in the morning he's heading back to Jerusalem. And it sounds like he skipped breakfast because it says he was hungry. And this sets the stage for one of the most controversial and deliberate miracles in the scriptures. Now I say controversial... Because over the years, many a commentator has tried to downplay this as not a real event. That's some kind of fictional story added to the scriptures. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. That's an attack on the scriptures right there. And they've tried to downplay it as different things. Some have said it's out of character for Jesus. It's a later addition to the scriptures. Some even described it as Jesus having a fit of anger like a petulant child and throwing a temper tantrum because he was hungry and didn't have food. Jesus was not hangry, folks. He was not hangry. Some have questioned, even questioned, I should say dare to question his use of divine power in such a wasteful way, preferring it to be used in a way they would see fit, the commentator as if they know better than Jesus. But I want to tell you folks, there's no indication of this in the text. There's no temper tantrum. 
It's no irrational anger, nothing but deliberate act by Jesus. He's delivering a prophetic sign. And this is actually a parable. Did you know that? Now, I just told you it really happened. But I'm telling you, too, it's a parable. But it's a parable that Jesus is acting out in front of people. The fig tree, which is real, by the way, represent the temple and then by proxy Israel as a nation. We're going to see, and I want you to remember this, I want you to have this stick in your mind. Like tree, like temple. Like temple, like nation. Like tree, like temple. Like temple, like nation. And this can be applied to you and I today as well as churches so let's dig in a little bit. First, I want, I want to note that the Lord Jesus curses hypocrisy. Jesus and his disciples just walked two miles and he's hungry. And I know as somebody who practices intermittent fasting, I don't say that to boast. It's just something I do. It's more of a health thing for me. But hopefully some, sometimes you guys have an opportunity to fast for spiritual reasons. It's a good thing too. But when you fasted like that and you walked two miles, you can be pretty hungry. You can be pretty hungry. But not hangry. Remember I said Jesus wasn't hangry. I'm sure he was pretty hungry. He sees this fig tree. He's walking along and he sees this fig tree. He looks at it. I'm looking at that, that plant over there. And it's all green. And it's all inviting, full of leaves. And he says, hmm, maybe there's some ripe figs there. Maybe there's some ripe figs on that tree. Maybe he just knows it's too early for regular figs. But sometimes in that part of the world, fig trees produce an early crop of small green figs. They're not the tastiest, but they're better than nothing. It's key here, and I'm, not, I'm no Greek language expert. I don't read Greek myself. But commentators who do say that the Greek language indicates an honest expectation here on Jesus' part of finding fruit. He honestly was looking to find fruit, but alas, it was not to be. The tree, like the roses, was all show with no produce. And it's a symbol In the temple, religious professions abounded like the leaves of the fig tree, but there was no produce, nothing, no fruit to be had. This tree was a hypocrite. You see, Jesus had come down to the temple the night before, and he had seen all that was going on. He had seen the exploitation of the poor. He had seen the outward appearance of spirituality. He had seen the contempt of the Jewish leaders towards the Gentiles through their allowing the court of the Gentiles to be used as a marketplace. And oh, by the way, people seeking a shortcut through the city would often drag their goods and animals through there. How in the world are the Gentiles, you and I, non-Jews, who that court of the temple was made for to come worship, how would you... How would you worship in this room if I started bringing animals through here, donkeys and all kinds of camels and stuff like that, started hauling my goods and selling my money-changing business and doing all that, making all kinds of commotion and stinking it up with animals? How would you be able to worship How would you be able to worship? It would be a mess. Gentiles who came to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel couldn't even worship in peace. It was perverted by the love of money. The nation who was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles was now like a candle where there's nothing left but the wick. Have you ever bought a candle and let you know one of those nice tall candles smells real good? And it burns down and you have like this much wax in the bottom. But there's like a hole burned down right through the middle of it. And all that's left is this little tiny piece of wick. 
And it's almost out, and there's just this little tiny, tiny flame, not enough to even really melt any of the wax around it. That's so annoying, isn't it? <laughs> you spend money on a candle, and you got all this fragrant wax that's left behind. No wick to burn it, no fire. That's what the nation of Israel was like. They had no flame left. They weren't good for anything. All you can do with that candle is snuff it out and throw it away. And see, that fruitlessness, Jesus is going to curse them for that. And as I said, curse is a strong word, isn't it? But that's what he did. He cursed the fig tree. He cursed it. And he, in doing so, he pronounced a curse upon the nation of Israel for their hypocritical religiousness. That's a mouthful. Hypocritical religiousness. So we have to ask ourselves, church, we have to ask ourselves, what about us? What about us? How does this apply to us? If God would do this to his own people, will he do it to us too? Are we just full of leaves? Are we just like that tree over there? That fake tree that has no fruit on it. Is that us? Do we make a show of our religion? We may be saying to ourselves every Sunday, I come to church every Sunday. I go to Bible study. I do this and I do that. I go to prayer meeting. That's great and all. I encourage you to do so. You're commanded to do so, to come to church and meet regularly with the body of Christ. That's a command in Hebrews to do so regularly. To not do so is a sin. But Jesus is saying, that's great, but show me the fruit. Just like in that old movie, Jerry Maguire, right? Show me the money. (laughs) Right? He says, show me the money. And Jesus is saying, show me the fruit. Show me the deliciousness of your Christianity. Show me that delicious fruit that is doing the will of God. Because I don't like leaves. As I was writing this, I was, la- I, was, I was actually kind of giggling because I was like, who likes leaves? Everybody wants the fruit. Nobody wants the leaves. Giraffes eat leaves. <laughs> Bugs eat leaves. I don't eat leaves, neither does Jesus. We're not either of those. But seriously, folks, we can laugh about that, but... I want you to ask yourselves, are we, you and I, living the Spirit-filled life, or are we empty and dead, like the Apostle James talks about in his letter? Are you a doer of the Word? A doer of the Word. And make no mistake, hypocrisy is the most dangerous of games to play with the Lord. And you might be saying, be tempted to say, surely he's not talking to me. But make no mistake, my friend, hypocrisy is always self-deception. It's always self-deception. You may think you're one thing, but you're actually another. The Lord curses hypocrisy. But look, verses 13 and 14, we see the Lord curses unfruitfulness. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking... Perhaps Jesus had Jeremiah 8 come to mind. Perhaps Jesus had Jeremiah 8 come to mind. Now I'm kind of fibbing there because I didn't really think that. The commentators I read thought that. So I picked up on it. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 8. Page 674 of your pew Bible. You have to use your Bibles because it's not going to be up on the screen. Just the reference. While you guys are turning there, I'm going to take a break for a second. All right, we there yet? We there yet? I'm a little excited about the Word of God. But after we read this passage, we may not be so excited and smiling. How can you claim 
we are wise. The law of the Lord is with us. Quote, in fact, the lying pen of scribes has produced falsehood. The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and snared. They have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they really have? Therefore, I will give their wives to other men, their fields to new occupants. For from the least to the greatest, everyone is making profit dishonestly. Gee, that sounds familiar. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the brokenness of my dear people superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they acted so detestably? They weren't at all ashamed. They can no longer even feel humiliation. Therefore, they will fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they will collapse, says the Lord. I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. And pick up on this, church. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree. And even the leaf will wither. Whatever I have given them will be lost to them. Why are we just sitting here? And this is the response of the people. Why are we just sitting here, gathered together? Let's enter the fortified cities and perish there, for the Lord our God has destroyed us. He has given us poison water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. Fig tree says, Come to me, come to me. I'm all leafy and abundant and thriving. Come to me. But then it has no fruit to show. Woe to churches who advertise themselves as abundant and thriving and lively worship, yet have no fruit to show. Brothers and sisters, we need to watch out. If we bear no fruit in our lives, if we're not authentic in our worship and prayer, in our study of the word and fellowship, serving one another and sharing Christ with this world, God may just curse us. He may curse you. He may curse me with perpetual unfruitfulness. He may just curse you and move on. Somebody else. Again, that sounds harsh, but it's the hard truth of the scripture. God desires to sanctify his people. That means he wants to set you apart for his purposes. And when we go our own way and when we pursue our own purposes, we deviate from that plan. We deviate from his plan. When we deviate from that plan he laid out for us, folks, there's no guarantees God will ever let you back on that plan. So you got to watch out. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. That should not be interpreted that way. That's not possible. Jesus said, nobody can snatch you out of my hand. Nobody. That includes yourself. That includes yourself. If somebody renounces the name of Christ and says they, they're not a Christian, they never were. They never were. Even you can't do it. But don't think for a second, church, that God won't bring judgment in this world in this world that we live now to those who disobey his commands. As I said a few minutes ago, the fig tree represents the temple in this parable. And the cleansing of the temple is not really a cleansing. That's inserted by the translators. It doesn't say he cleansed the temple. What he actually did was abolish it. It means he, it was an abolition. Remember, like tree, like temple. Like tree, like temple. He casts out the merchants. Overturns their money tables in a symbolic gesture. Now, you know, I thought about doing that. Putting a table up here with some coin on it. 
doing that, but I thought that would be disruptive and make light of the situation. Effectively, Jesus is saying that he's overthrowing the priests and the temple. He's expelling them. He's throwing them out from God's purpose and abandoning his earthly temple. No longer is it going to be the primary instrument in God's purpose because God will judge that which promises one thing but delivers another. You know, I was reading through the, the internet the other day as I was preparing, searching for some information, and I came across a blog where a guy was talking about uh, TV evangelists. And he was talking about giving and things like that and and pastors who misquote Scripture and manipulate people to get them to give. And he said, here are two examples. One of these telecasts, one of the leading pastors said this, I was, quote, reading the Bible and came across John 3.16. The words that popped out were the words that he gave. God gave. And I believe God was telling me to share with you today that as God gave his son for you, for us, so we must all give to this ministry. Think about God giving to you and use this opportunity to give. The gentleman said he was appalled. He said another pastor on that show said this, if you're having problems in your home, your marriage, your life, you're unwell, it's because you're not giving. You're not giving. Not based on Scripture at all. He should be appalled at that. To manipulate people to get money out of them is just plain sinful, isn't it? And when it's done in the name of God, it's just plain wicked. It's wickedness. The Lord Jesus will deal with wickedness amongst His people, won't He? The acted out parable of the fig tree is going to find its fulfillment and reality in the Lord's assault in the next few verses on those he identifies as a den of robbers. It says he overturned the money changers' tables and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Mark alone gives us that detail. Worship to Jesus, folks, was so high so great, an infinite experience, so deep a need that the casual use of the temple courts as a highway or convenience were simply intolerable. Intolerable. Now we can make our own application in our own thinking and acting. Don't you think? How often we treat it not as a great worship. Now I'm talking about worship. Not as the greatest of all realities, not as infinite worth, but as a means to something else. We come to church seeking to escape from worry. We come to church as some form of gratification, some form of emotional satisfaction, trying to satisfy something deep emotionally within us. And not so much today, but in the recent past in our country, Coming to church was used as a means of social advancement or even a way to respectability. How many people in here have seen the movie The Right Stuff? You remember when they were in that press conference, their first big press conference, the original Mercury 7 astronauts? And they're going before the press and they're answering these questions. And they asked them, one guy asked them, Do you go to church? And Alan Shepard, you know, who you know his history, not the saint that you would imagine. He uh, he's like, oh yeah, of course we go to church. And Gus Grissom was like, yeah, we go to church every Sunday. Every Sunday. Yet, what they were doing on the side was abominable. Now, I don't say that to to undermine their contribution to our nation and the space race and all that. Just as a point there. 
And the point is not that we shouldn't find satisfaction in church. The point is not that we shouldn't find calm for our anxiety. The point is not that we shouldn't find rest from our weariness in dealing with the world. Certainly we find those things in church. And we're built up by each other. But rather, these are the results of worship. These are the benefits of worship and fellowship with our Christian brothers and sisters. They are not the purpose of worship. We are here to worship the one and only Almighty God who came in human flesh. We're not here to talk about politics, although you may talk with a fellow Christian about politics. But we're not here to talk about politics or to be a political appendage. We're not here to talk about the Super Bowl, as fun as that may be to talk about out in the foyer. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But we're not here now. We don't come here to this place for that. The reason why we're here is to glorify our God and Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. It is Him we proclaim to the nations, to all the nations, church, all the nations. And when we lose that focus, we take our eyes off the Lord Jesus. And that's when we'll fall. You know, I was going to take you through the passage in Matthew 14. But I think you guys know it. It's up on the screen. You know, The disciples leave Jesus praying. I'll just paraphrase it for the sake of time. Disciples leave Jesus praying on the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. They go across, and in the middle of the night, they're being battered by the wind and the waves, and Jesus comes walking on the water. And they're like, it's a ghost. And he's like, no, it's just me. It's just me, guys. Don't be afraid. And he tells, Peter's like, You know, tell me to come out on the water and I'll come out on the water. He says, come on out. And when he comes on out, Peter's walking on water too. But then he sees the strength of the wind and the battering of the waves and all that. Takes his eyes off Jesus and puts them on the world. And he falls in the water. He says, Lord, save me. We're a lot more like Peter than we'd like to admit, aren't we? At some point in the past, most of the people in this room, most of you guys and ladies, answered God's call to turn your hearts and minds away from sin, what we call repentance, and to come to Jesus for salvation. But at some point, we've all taken our eyes off Jesus. We've all taken our eyes off Jesus, whether that's because we're scared of the wind Or we're drawn back to this world like Demas in the New Testament? Or we're drawn away by our own need for satisfaction, emotional or otherwise? We're choked out by the vines, by the thorns and thistles? You know, Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower. And that's not good. It's a very serious thing. I would even say it's an abomination when churches do this, when the primary reason, the only reason that we come together on the Lord's Day is no longer to bring praise and adoration to the Lord, to pray together, confessionally, corporately, thankfully, and to listen to Him speak through His Word, to be refreshed by the Holy Spirit, So that we can then go forth and proclaim salvation to the nations. And church, we're in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble. We're no better than that temple. And we see what happened to them. We see what happened to them. We learn that Israel's purpose in election was to be the light of the nations. Do you remember when Moses came down from the mountain? His face was all shining and people were freaking out. That's not in the scripture, right? They don't say they're freaking out. (laughs) But uh, 
You know, people were freaking out. He had to cover his face. He had to put a veil over his face. Just so they didn't lose their minds. He was reflecting God's glory. And like that, Israel was to reflect God's glory and to be a testimony to it. Even the priests and high priests, though, were full of human vice and sin and greed. Over in Matthew 23, turn in your Bibles. Matthew 23. We're going to see a passage here. Now, the high priests were Sadducees. But this is Jesus tangling with the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious conservatives. And I'm taking us to this passage because, see, Sadducees, the high priests and all them, they didn't believe in the resurrection. But the Pharisees did. And we tend to be more like the Pharisees than the, than the Sadducees. And he says this in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 25, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed, self-indulgence, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Lord Jesus will judge the witness and the testimony of his people. So I want to ask you, church, today, what is your testimony is it the Pharisee and the scribe, a testimony of shutting up the kingdom in the face of others so they can't get her in, get in? Is it a fruitless testimony? Do you just bear no fruit in your life? You do nothing with your faith. Just bury it in the ground like the talent. Are you here today to praise God? And to humbly learn at the feet of King Jesus. Or are you here to meet a need? Emotional satisfaction. You know, like you need to feel all right that you went to church today. Is that your testimony? Is that your testimony? Or maybe you're just putting on airs. Pretending to be something you're not. And by the way, I'm talking to myself here. As I'm preaching to you. Are you just putting on airs, pretending to be something you're not, pretending to be that pretty rose, that fig tree and leaf, but with no fruit, pretending to be pious? Is that your testimony? I'm here to tell you, church, the Lord will judge that and render a guilty verdict every single time. Every single time. But see, the Lord Jesus' judgment is final. But so is His forgiveness. So is His forgiveness. Verses 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21 says, Early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And that was the case with the Jewish temple. It was done, finished, kaput, abolished, and abandoned by Jesus right there. He was symbolically abandoning it right there as God's primary instrument to the world for his light. 
No longer would the religious leaders of the day tell the world of his glory and goodness. He's judged them and moved on. He's judged them and moved on. Now, does that mean the Jews are completely lost? I can see some of you right now who know your scriptures are saying, well, what about Romans 11? What about Romans 11? You're throwing up an objection to what I may be saying about God's judgment being final. So let me be clear. God's judgment upon the temple is final. It was destroyed years later. God's expulsion of the priests from the purpose of Israel, the Levitical priests, is final. Neither one are no longer any part of God's redemptive purpose for the world. The Jews who rejected Jesus as their Messiah back then and as today, and just as Gentiles who reject the Messiah, they're lost, condemned. The Lord's judgment is final, and we must not be tempted to think that we're any better somehow. So it's not up on the screen, but if you want to turn to it, Romans 11, 17 through 22, I want to read this to you. And this is where some of you may have drawn objection, but I trust I've allayed that. Romans 11, 17 through 22, give you a second to get there. Page 1006 of your Pew Bible, if you're using a Pew Bible. And I forgot to put this in the slides, so that's why it's not up on the screen. It says, Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and that's the Jews Paul's talking about, and you, though a wild olive branch, that's us, non Jews, Gentiles, were grafted in among them and come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. Do not boast. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. See, he's, answering, he's asking the question for them. They're boasting that they're somehow better than the Jews who were condemned. He says, true enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Don't be ignorant, but beware, because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. God's judgment is final, but so is his forgiveness, because look at verse 22. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you if you remain in His kindness. Church, I want to tell you, far and away, this is the hardest message I've ever had to prepare and to preach. What are we going to do with what we heard today? How do we remain in God's kindness? How do we remain in God's kindness? Because you don't want to deal with God's severity like the temple did. So a couple of things here. How do we remain in His kindness? We must have an attitude of continual repentance. Continual repentance. We must repent of taking our eyes off Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus. Look into Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of God. Repent of taking our eyes off Jesus. Second, we must repent of seeking our own wants and purposes instead of the Lord's. Philippians 2, 1-5 If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and here it is, make my joy complete, Paul's saying, by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, one purpose, one purpose. And how does that work itself out in verse 3, 4, and 5? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. When you think about that person who you just feel like you can't bring yourself to witness to, maybe they'll reject you. You're scared. We all feel that. All of us. The elders feel it. We know it. We deal with it too. We're human. But when you think about that, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. That goes for your unsaved neighbor. That leads to the next point. We must repent from keeping Jesus to ourselves. I'm feeling convicted, church. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus says, His mission is our mission. It's our mission. We're his ambassadors. We're his ambassadors. You know, recently, I had a lot of people come up and tell me happy birthday back there on the 12th, and that made, made my heart warm, having all those birthday wishes. But you know what? I got a secret I got to let out. That's not my real birthday. Not my real birthday. You see, I was born into this world in the flesh on February 12th, 74. But my real birthday is August 26, 2002. I was born into the kingdom of God. I was born again and made alive by the Holy Spirit because I was dead in my sin and trespasses. I was saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was set aside for his purposes. For his purposes. Man, it messes with you. And your testimony means something to you. I was set aside for his purposes. I belong body and soul and mind to the Lord. He purchased me on the cross. He gave his life for you and I. And if you don't know him, you can know him. He's looking for you right now. I'm telling you how to find him. Telling you about him. Telling you what he's done for me. And he can do for you. Put your faith in the Savior today. How about you? Have you repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, salvation isn't by repentance. I want to make that clear too. Salvation isn't by repentance. It's through repentance. It's something we do in the process of being saved. We repent and believe the gospel. Salvation is not because of repentance, but it's through it. We're all sinners that deserve eternal punishment. We're all sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. On the cross, Jesus gave us his righteousness and took our sin on himself. 
If you receive the Lord Jesus today, you can receive eternal life. And that's my plea to you today. Is that you would receive eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and turn to Him. Embrace Him. He'll give you a new life. He'll give you a new birthday. Day we call today. And He'll use you for His purposes. And then you follow Him in baptism. Church, we're going to pray here in a second. Today has been a hard time in the Word. Maybe you feel down. Maybe you feel destroyed. Like when I read Jeremiah 8 when I was preparing this, and even now reading it today, I felt destroyed. There's no doubt God is severe in His judgment, but there's also no doubt that He's exceedingly kind as well. And we've benefited from His kindness here at Leonardtown Baptist Church. We've definitely enjoyed it thus far, and we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaim that good news, that kindness to the world. If we don't, watch out. Watch out. He may just move on. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord... Oh, Lord, how we thank you for your word that convicts us. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who gives us hope. In the midst of judgment, when we should be judged and sent to eternal punishment in hell. When we've embraced the Lord Jesus, we have hope. We have his righteousness on the day of judgment. And we will be saved. And Lord, how great a thing that is. How great a benefit we've enjoyed in knowing you, our Lord Jesus. And we have dwelled in your kindness. And Lord, as I know many of these fellow brothers and sisters in this room, even today we'll be proclaiming Christ and telling somebody about Christ. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would seize the opportunities that are given to us. That we would recognize them and take action on them. Caring for one another. Loving one another. Putting others before ourselves in humility. That we would reach that neighbor. That we would take today and go to that neighbor. And maybe just say to them, Lord, you go to church? Or maybe we're just blunt with them. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Lord? Do you know you're saved? Because Lord, we have a great Savior. And we have a great Lord, Jesus Christ. Lord, after this passage today, it feels tough to be happy. But we got to be happy. We got to be happy because we're happy in you. We're happy in your kindness, your gentleness, and your love. So, Lord, you are the God of all hope. We hope in you today. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.